Silicon Valley is salivating at the possibilities of disrupting and displacing the traditional real estate agent. So we decided to bring on Brian Boero, the CEO of Thousand Well Consulting, my, in my opinion, the most well-known and well-respected agency in real estate. Brian and his partner, Mark, I believe are the champions of real estate agents. So we brought him on the show here to help our audience future-proof their business against their Essentially, if we interpret it as Brian, their inevitable extinction. Uh, Brian, welcome to the water cooler. Hey, thanks, Jimmy. It's it's great to be here. Yeah, you're you're a returning guest, and it's always great to have you come on the show. And and like I said, one of our goals here for today's show is we want to make sense of the hype that's out there, the things that are happening in real estate right now that agents can kind of safely ignore. And the exact same time, we also want to, you know, point out and highlight some of the real threats they're facing and what they can actually do about these things. Uh, Brian, before we get into it, though, I do want to ask you a very simple question. Um, if I Google my real estate agent is, the first three results are, and by the way, Google's using machine learning to predict the best possible results based on like past search history. The three results that you'll see on the screen here are my real estate agent is rude, is lazy, is not helpful, is not doing anything, is ignoring me, is unresponsive, is lying. So my question is, why does our industry have a bullseye on its back? Our industry has a bullseye on its back because our industry deserves to have a bullseye on its back. And what I mean by that is that, um, and any good real estate agent knows this, mm -hmm. um, that uh, we have 1.2 million realtors in America right now. Okay. And about 900,000 of them have no business doing something so important as helping people buy and sell homes, mm -hmm. right? You have part-timers, you have dilettantes, you have uh, people who get into it for the wrong reasons. You have people who are either compromised intellectually or ethically. Yep. And you got a lot of bozos, mm -hmm. right? So if you're, you know, a great real estate agent, or working on a great team, yeah. you have to contend with hundreds of thousands of knuckleheads sure. degrading what you do as a professional every single day. Mm -hmm. So the good agent, the good broker, the good team lead mm -hmm. bears the burden of that class of people sure. who every day in a million ways, large and small, uh, do their part to demean the vocation of selling real estate. Mm -hmm. So it's a problem. Yeah, well, it's interesting to hear you say that. And I think that number probably is higher, quite honestly, when you say 900,000 to 1.2 million, it feels like I know every good agent out there, you know, being in this industry for now 10 years and going to these conferences, yeah. like you can just sort of instinctively tell someone who actually takes this job seriously and the responsibility seriously and works on it like it's their craft and their career and the people who are just simply in it for all the wrong reasons, like you mentioned. But given the nature of where the world is headed right now, what exactly is what exactly is the good agent supposed to do about that perception? You know, we're going to get into some specifics here a little bit later. But if you're if you're sort of attached to a sinking ship, like what options do you have? You, do you try to plug the holes in the ship, or do you jump off board and get on another boat? Well, I don't think that the I don't think that the good agent or the good team or the mm -hmm. good brokerage is a sinking ship. I think there are two things that need to happen for for the good people to thrive into the future in this mm -hmm. business and that is create distance and difference between yourself and the knuckleheads yeah. that um, 
surround you in your marketplace. And that's an exercise in, you know, frankly, what we do and what you do at Curator, which is great marketing, great branding, having a distinctive story, having a um, differentiated presence in the world, whether mm -hmm. that's digitally or personally, um, separating yourself from those people who, um, you know, produce those sorts of, of Google results yeah. is, is more important than ever. I would also say that, you know, there's there's lots of FUD right now uh, in, in real estate, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Mm -hmm. And um, it, some of it is warranted. I think a lot of it is um, manufactured. Um, but the, the reality is um, sort of if you went to a um, – let's say you went to a Mike Ferry event, mm -hmm. right? Or one of those coaches, you know, that that's, you know, legendary in the sure. 1980s. What would you learn? You would learn that you need to prospect, mm -hmm. you need to work your farm, yep. you need to keep in touch with your people, and you need to create relationships. Sure. And the reality is, despite 25 years of technology and apps and tech BS and hype and all of that stuff, mm -hmm. the reality is that's still the key to thriving in this business. We just have different ways of doing it now with all the technology. Sure. So if you're a great agent, and you want to inoculate yourself against disruption, yeah. man, hanging on to your clients mm -hmm. post-transaction, mm -hmm. working your, your farm, yeah. prospecting like crazy, yeah. those basic tactics and strategies, even though we use different tactics to yeah. achieve them, are still the thing that's going to sustain you. Yeah. It's, it's really that simple. And um, those agents that are incapable of doing that or are simply, you know, dependent on, um, you know, putting leads into the lead machine, yep. um, uh, I think are going to struggle. Is the agent overpaid? Even the good ones. Are good agents overpaid? Because that's the argument I'm hearing, Brian, is that when I listen to every uh, Silicon Valley presentation about how they're going to disrupt this space – when I look at any deck that any of these investors are using to basically raise capital, uh, it, it is it is pointing at, if you will, one number, and that is the hundred billion dollars that agents are receiving in commission annually, and that's an estimate, right, from Andreessen yeah. Horowitz. Um, do you think that this industry suffers from not just a perception of being overpaid, but actually being overpaid? Um, yes and no. Um, and I have this debate all the time. My wife is a real estate agent. Okay. So <clears throat> aside from the six hours that I sleep each night, I think about real estate all day at work. <laughs> and then I go home and I talk about real estate sure. at home. And this is a, a subject of great discussion when I arrive at home. And I would say yes and no. And what I mean by that is um, it is hard to argue with the fact that there are, let's say, fifty to $60,000 in commissions to take theoretical example mm -hmm. on a million dollar real estate transaction yeah right right you, that just in some ways doesn't pass some sort of smell test sure on the other hand i think good real estate professionals um are underpaid in the sense that those people should be doing more business mm -hmm. a great a great real estate agent should make a ton of money yeah they deserve to do it because it's important work but the reality is, is with all of these agents out there in the marketplace, 
that volume of transactions, roughly 5 million a year, two sides each, 10 million sides in real estate, yeah. has to get distributed out along that long, sloppy tail of mm -hmm. agents who mm -hmm. are just picking up a deal or two a year that really competent, good agents aren't making enough. Yeah. So sure, you could make an you could make an argument that I I think sticks that if you isolate a given transaction, sure, there's room for efficiency there. Mm -hmm. But I'm all for great agents making a ton of money. Sure. I think they deserve to. Yeah. So in this particular case, though, are you recommending sort of the supercuts model of, of commission, which is to say that when I go to supercuts, I can choose an inexperienced, you know, stylist for like 10 bucks to cut my hair, or I can level up to a high end stylist who has maybe a couple of years of experience who theoretically will not butcher my haircut and make me look terrible. Is that what um, we're saying here? You know, I haven't been to supercuts since I was. Neither have I for the record. I don't want people blown it, up on Twitter. Jimmy gets his haircut at supercuts. <laughs> <laughs> it may look like I go to Supercuts, but I actually haven't. Um, I don't know. I mean, look, I think people who are at that that level where they're not masters of their craft sure. really should be nested within uh, a team or a brokerage that can mentor them and guide them, mm -hmm. uh, not thrown out onto the street um, with minimal experience and capacity and um, – put in front of people who are depending on them to guide them through something very important. So, no, I, I think we should have 200,000 outstanding real estate professionals worthy of that label mm -hmm. who make a good living. Yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's what I would like to see. Yeah. What's NAR doing about this? Meaning, what is NAR doing about the fact that as I said at the beginning of the show, that if I understand it correctly, and again, you know the space so much more than I do. I am, for to a large degree, an outsider. I came in this industry ten years ago, and uh, it's it's you know I've came from the technology and marketing world into this space. And like many people who are like me who enter into the space, you sort of just see it as this sort of blue ocean because you see an opportunity where marketing and technology can really actually uh, help uh, move a, a brokerage, a team, an agent into the twenty first century. Uh, but in this case, if I understand it correctly, NAR's job is to advocate on behalf of their members. And it feels like, and maybe you can correct that definition, but it feels like in some instances, the, uh, the advocacy they would be doing on behalf of their members would be in contrast or conflict with what's good for consumers. Meaning, yes. if you're preserving this sort of status quo of 6% commission, as an example, on a real estate transaction, and knowing that all of these technology advancements have created mass efficiencies in the process, therefore the time and energy and effort it takes to complete a transaction is theoretically much smoother and less resources, if that is the case, shouldn't the price theoretically go down? But obviously, from NARS perspective, they're in a position where like they are going to be advocating for that to protect their members, but consumers are going to be gravitating towards something that's, you know, more appealing to their needs. So like what happens when those two things are actually in conflict, the needs of the consumer, which is what the agent serves and the desires for NAR to advocate on behalf of their agents, which might run in conflict. Well, look, I, I am a, I think sometimes pretty severe critic of NAR and uh, there are many fine people there. And I am a firm believer in home ownership. Um, I think it improves um, lives and communities, mm -hmm. and they do support that. However, I think the question about NAR is not should they be advocating for their members, but who are their members? Right now, NAR 
is feeding the beast of mediocrity in this industry, mm. right? NAR is a membership organization that lives or dies on having more members, mm -hmm. right? Does that make sense? Yeah. So NAR sustains this problem that we have of hundreds of thousands of people not worthy of the mantle NAR in its advertising yep. bestows upon them. Um, and, and that's a problem. So sure. NAR, even as it purports to advocate for its membership, really needs to think about, you know, on, on whose behalf is it advocating? Sure. Because they are advocating for people that, uh, frankly, are not worthy of that advocacy. Mm -hmm. But you can't expect NAR to take self-destructive action. Yeah. So I can rail against mediocrity in this business and sure. NAR's um, uh, worsening of that condition. But at the end of the day, it'd be like asking curator, hey, look, guys, just stop with, you know, the video stuff and the marketing stuff and mm -hmm. uh, just lay low. Mm -hmm. Like, it's irrational for them to do that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, NAR, I have a big problem with NAR um, because they're, they're part of the problem. Sure. And when you, in that regard, yeah, in the sense that the the perception that the industry has that causes Silicon Valley companies to be salivating to be able to jump into the space and take a big chunk of that hundred billion dollars in commission is predicated on the fact that NAR lifts up or elevates these mediocre, incompetent, lazy agents at the same yeah. level it does the good ones. Yeah. So look, realtors are an easy target. Sure. They always have. Okay. You make fun of realtors. Realtors aren't viewed in popular culture, very mm -hmm. favorably. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they're an easy target. And uh, in part because we allow people to become realtors who um, have no business doing that. Sure. And as I suggested earlier, demean the profession. So, so long as NAR um, continues to persist on, on the dues dollars mm -hmm. of people who have no business actually doing what they do, then NAR is, uh, inviting those types of criticism sure um, so I, you know i don't know what to do about it but you know look we the nar has a code of ethics mm -hmm. great code of ethics you read those letters every single person who uh, reads those uh, i think would support them but really can nar make promises on behalf of its members sure sure the, given so they, the composition of of, of of their membership roles. You know what it reminds me of, Brian? It reminds me of um, the story of this um, famous corporate company that, uh, uh, and when you walked into their downtown Manhattan offices on the wall, they had uh, three words. It was like integrity, respect, and honor. And, and that company was Enron. So what you're really saying is, and that may not be the exact three words, but it's something along those lines. What you're really saying is they have these sort of uh, talking points that are their code of ethics that essentially they can't really enforce because their membership is too large, too, dis too dispersed, and they don't really have any enforcement uh, uh, arm of the division, if you will, or, 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 or agency that's going to be able to, to really effectively put these things into place. Without getting too much in the weeds, because I do think for our audience, uh, I'm sure you can talk about NAR all day long, and I just wanted to get your kind of quick reaction to it. We do have a, a larger point here that I wanted to get to, which is actually addressing some of the real and some of the actual, uh, what you consider to be sort of maybe uh, not real or overhyped threats within our industry. 
And guys, if you can do me a favor, just on the visual here for one moment, I'm going to pull up some uh, screenshots in just a second. But before we do, uh, one of the common things I'm seeing right now, Brian, is I'm seeing this iBuyer movement take hold. Like everywhere I turn, Amen's covering it. You guys have talked about it. I'm seeing New York Times cover it. I'm seeing you know Bloomberg's covering it. Uh, how serious of a threat is? Well, first off, define what iBuyer is, just for those who don't know. And then I want you to, to react to how serious of a threat iBuyer is to these good agents that we're speaking to now. Okay. Well, I mean, an iBuyer, in, in my definition, is um, with large amounts of capital and a, a really well-designed consumer experience, making the transaction faster and more certain, mm -hmm. right? Come in. Here's what you think your home's right. Sure. We'll stroke you a check for this right away. You move out and you're done. Yeah. You go into that knowing that you may leave some money on the table. Mm -hmm. uh, but if that's cool with you, it's cool with us. And for people who value that, and yep. there are a significant number of them, perfectly viable option. Mm -hmm. So getting back to my second part of the question, which is, is it a threat? Because right now, the amount of coverage that you see right now is is pretty enormous in comparison to sort of the market share they have. Yeah, it's not a threat. And what I mean by that is um, consider consider a, a threat that emerged 13, 14 years ago, this mm -hmm. estimate, okay? Yeah, sure. So Zillow comes in, they, they pull back the curtain and expose to millions of consumers a number mm -hmm. that represents with varying degrees of accuracy a, a possible home value yeah okay the industry freaked out this is terrible it's a threat we can't deal with it it's confusing the reality is is that the zestimate was god's gift to the realtor value proposition mm -hmm. any competent skilled realtor could could take that zestimate yeah walk into a listing presentation and say okay here's what zillow told you okay here here's what i think mm -hmm. and here are the reasons why and here's our pricing strategy for your home and that zestimate perceived by a threat by so many was actually an opportunity and sure. a catalyst for different conversations if you're a skilled realtor. Yeah. Same thing with iBuying, right? Mm -hmm. And a, a iBuying is an opportunity for a skilled realtor to walk in and say, in markets where it's available, yeah. Zillow or Open Door says your home is worth this. You can certainly you know, take that offer and move down that path. Yeah. Um, here's the value that I deliver as a real estate professional. And it could produce a different outcome that looks like this for these reasons, and this is how I do it, mm -hmm. right? So I don't view it as a threat. Yeah. I think it's going to, the good thing about iBuying is I think it's for real. Yeah. I think whether it ends up being 5, 10, 20, 30% of the market, I don't know. Yeah. But I think hundreds of thousands, if not millions of consumers over the next decade are going to choose that path. Mm -hmm. And what that's going to do is it's going to take a certain number of those 5 million home sales off yeah. the table yeah. and it's going to create scarcity. Mm -hmm. And when you have scarcity, those people out on the fringes of real estate who aren't very good, who have done one, two or zero deals a year for the sure. last 10 years, aren't going to survive. Yeah. Right? And, and I saw something on, uh, I believe it was in one of the press releases that uh, uh, iBuyer right now represents about 6% of the Phoenix market. I think Phoenix is one yeah. of their kind of primary markets they're operating within. Yeah. And, 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 I, and I read a study by Scott Galloway, the founder of L2, who now is part of the uh, Recode podcast Pivot. He talked a little mm -hmm. bit about uh, it, there's a certain tipping point in um, 
in, in these markets where if you hit 20%, you, you become a serious player. And the point yeah. he uses is, is groceries. For a very long time, online groceries was essentially a, a non-starter. You know, we covered a story back in the 1990s where a company came on and they wanted to deliver groceries to your house. And, uh, and that company obviously flopped during the dot-com boom. But now we see yeah. the rise of Instacart. More recently, Amazon Fresh has started taking over the world. And this sort of skip, Brian, where it went from basically being about three to seven to 10% of the market to now the projections are within about three years to be about 75% of the market. There was sort of this inflection point, if you will, or tipping point that they experienced. Why wouldn't that be the case for iBuyer if, and I'll ask Chris's question because he had a great question that he posted to me before the show. Why wouldn't that be the case for iBuyer if they get rid of the asterisks? The asterisks being, you're going to take a little bit of a haircut on the on the actual valuation of your home or the potential sale of your home. If they get rid of those asterisks, why would a normal consumer or a modern consumer uh, want to go through the process of the uncertainty of the listing process, the open houses, the ne negotiations with the buyer, when the price theoretically would be the price they would get at the end of that transaction. So if iBuyer is able to get to the level where they're able to say, our price is pretty much at the same price as you're gonna get if you list with a competent real estate agent, and if they're able to prove that undoubtedly with the access to the data they have to show that the numbers are the numbers, why would a consumer go down the other road of working with a professional? Why wouldn't the iBuyer just immediately cannibalize the vast majority of the market? I think that is the $6 billion question. Mm -hmm. and, um, I think, first of all, I don't think that iBuying is all hype. I think it's a real phenomenon. Sure. And I think it's going to be a significant part of residential resale real estate. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yes, it's going to be part of a world. It's not hype. Do I think right now iBuying is faster, undeniably, mm -hmm. it's faster. Um, for some, it is better. Having a quick and certain experience is better. Yeah. The the one thing that is up in the air, which you're keying in, Eon, in on, is is it cheaper, okay? Mm -hmm. It is not from the seller's perspective. They're gonna take a bit of a haircut on the house, sure. and they're gonna pay the same or more in transaction fees. Mm -hmm. Now, over time, we're going to get closer and closer to hitting that third rail of cheaper as well. The yeah. algorithms are going to get better. There is no reason to expect that we won't approach cheaper. Mm -hmm. Now, will we get to parity mm -hmm. with what you could theoretically get with a real estate agent? Yeah. In some cases, maybe. Sure. In many cases, I don't think so. Yeah. Right. So, so all of America does not look like uh, subdivided Phoenix. Sure. It just does. Yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah. Right. I live in the same, I'm, I'm sitting here in Oakland, California yeah. and, uh, we got some weird quirky housing stock here. Dude. Yeah, sure. So, sure. You know, is it always going to be the case that, um, you know, I buying is not in places like the San Francisco Bay area. No, I think they'll be here, but yeah. is it going to take the whole pie. No. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a really interesting way of looking at it because here in the north end of Boston, we have apartments that are like L-shaped, seven hundred square foot places that sell for like you know seven hundred thousand dollars. And uh, yeah. I have no idea how you'd go about finding comps for that particular property because they're all basically yeah. different because they're built three hundred years ago. But what's interesting yeah. about what you said though is this idea of cheaper. 
And meaning at the end of the day is the net profit the consumer receives going to be relatively the same through an iBuyer model versus a real estate agent. And what's interesting to me and what I'd like to get your reaction to is I've said this for a long time, and I know there's a lot of fear mongering happening in the real estate industry. I've always said that you shouldn't be afraid of Zillow. You should be afraid of Amazon. And I've said this because Amazon can, can has two distinct advantages over every company we've mentioned, whether you're, uh, you're, you're Opendoor, you're Redfin, you're Zillow. The difference between Amazon, other than the fact that market cap is significantly higher, is Amazon can operate at a loss forever. Insert forever. However long they want to operate a loss, they can operate at a loss. And they also are the world's best, probably the best ever in the history of business logistic company in the world. So, yes. so, so, and, and they also have on the back end, this is the second part of it, Brian, that I wanted to ask you about. They also have all the auxiliary services that could essentially allow the sale of the property to be a loss leader, to be able to sort of compensate later on down the road, meaning they can, they ha they, they can get into any industry, any product that, you know, I see things now with Amazon where like, yeah, they've gone from like being able to, um, you know, put your orders on auto delivery, but now like there's going to be services where they're, they're just going to tell you what you need because they know, and they're going to just start shipping it to you. So Amazon, you know, is obviously all in on the household. What are your thoughts about this idea of if you, if you knowing that, let's say that, that movement towards price is going to be a point of contention at the very minimum, it's probably going to be a discussion that you have at the listing appointment. Let's just say that. Let's say it's not a serious option. Let's just say it's a discussion. How does an agent position themselves or at least present present or discuss this iBuying concept in a way that doesn't make them look petty? Where they just look like, oh, the iBuying thing's a joke. You shouldn't use it. You're going to get way less money. Like That's kind of what they've been doing. Like Consumers like Zillow and their natural reaction is to trash talk Zillow. And that obviously creates a sort of like unnecessary contention. So how does an agent talk about iBuying when the conversation comes up if we know that, let's say in this situation, it's not really going to be a differentiator or it's not going to be a, a serious option, but the consumer's thinking about it? Well, like I said, I think the iBuyer's offer is a catalyst for conversations and a natural prompt mm -hmm. for a good, competent, and competent agent to speak about their unique value. That's what it is. This estimate was a number, the iBuyer offer is a number. If you can't talk your way around that as a real estate agent, you're gonna be in trouble. Mm -hmm. And that's good yeah. because you shouldn't be practicing real estate in the first place sure. if you can't talk around that. Mm -hmm. Now, I would say relative to Amazon, I mean, just let me ask a question. Is Amazon gonna sell funerals? I, I wouldn't put anything past Jeff Bezos. Well, first off, Jeff Bezos, okay. I think I think it's going to cure is going to cure uh, death in his lifetime. So probably no, no, no. But I mean, is so uh, Grandma dies. Are you going to go to Amazon sure. and uh, you know order your cremation, your funeral service, your yeah. burial, the flowers, and everything? Are you are you going to do that? Could Amazon do that? Yeah. The, the, yes. the answer your question. Will, will, they, will they do it? Mm -hmm. Well, it's a good question. I think my rea my response. I know where you're going with the line of questioning, which is um, when a when a transaction is deeply emotional, is it going to is it going to be displaced or disrupted by an entirely automated process? And mm -hmm. and, and and that's a good that's a very good question. I, I tweeted this a while back, and I think I stole this quote, but I, I haven't been able to find the original source. But I said basically, as long as there are therapists in the world, there'll be real estate agents. 
and, yeah. and, and, and I'm going to take credit for it until someone tells me that it wasn't my quote originally, but, uh, that is what you're really getting. I hear is that beyond the number, which is just a number, whether it's a estimate or an I buy a number yeah. it is a deeply emotional and irrational decision that consumers are making to sell or buy a home. Well, and that's an understatement, Jimmy. And look, I, the, the degree to which that sort of, uh, protects the industry against disruption I don't know sure. how to point that. I don't know anything about the future. Right? Mm -hmm. I'm just a guy who's been around real estate for 22 years who's talking to you. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I don't know how it's all going to play out. But to say that the real estate transaction is emotional is actually an understatement. Mm -hmm. The real estate transaction, uh, is, as Mark wrote yesterday, sort of takes in the totality of what it is to be a human being. Mm -hmm. Right? It is emotional. It is logical. It is intuitive. It involves uh, the joy of gaining something. It, yeah. enjoy, it involves the pain, many in many cases, of losing something, mm -hmm. right? To say that it is emotional is an understatement. And does that, what segment of the market does that reserve in perpetuity mm -hmm. for the still real estate practitioner? I think it reserves a good chunk of it. Mm -hmm. I think it reserves a, a an enough enough of it for great real estate professionals to con to continue to thrive into the future. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to get into some specifics uh, later on about sort of future proofing your business. Because when you refer to a great real estate agent, I'm going to get really specific with you. And I'm going to ask questions around sort of what are the key areas of investment an agent should make. So, you know, as any business, you need to invest in marketing, you need to invest in sales, you need to invest in customer service. But what does it actually mean to be a great at all of those things? And we'll talk more about that a little bit later. One idea that I want to run by you, Brian, I'll pull up some examples of this in just a moment. Uh, Arguably the most well-known uh, investor in Silicon Valley, Andreessen Horowitz, uh, Mark Andreessen, who uh, was the founder of Mosaic, who later on went on to do Netscape, really the first popular browser, uh, who has become sort of a, uh, a, 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 a fortune teller in this space, right? He sort of predicts the future pretty regularly with a, with a high degree of accuracy. He's talking about this idea of how software eats the world, and he's now getting into the space of real estate. He says, and this is their theory they're working off of, and this fits into the iBuyer idea, but people will buy and in the future, his prediction is people will buy and sell real estate from a company, meaning a holding company will basically, like, it, it, I guess what he's really saying here, Brian, is it's as if the MLS basically owned all the real estate that was on it, and then consumers can simply sell it to the MLS or buy it from the MLS, not buying it from a consumer or selling it to a consumer. Are they wrong? They are not entirely wrong, no. And what he's talking about is eye buying. And I saw that video and mm. that's a perfect example. Like this is a super smart guy yeah. at, at, you know, a premier venture capital firm and he's looking at it and he's looking at it with sort of the left brain rational eyes. And there's a lot that doesn't make sense, right? Mm -hmm. Outsiders look into real estate and it looks like bizarro world. Yeah, sure. It, it's a funky, wonderful, human, weird business sure. that, you know, you and I love, but it's like you look in, you know, looking into the fishbowl and it's weird. So you listen to his take on it. Totally makes sense. Like yeah. if, if this guy was debating you and I, he'd win. It makes sense. Sure. But I, you know, having, having stewed in real estate for as long as I have, <laughs> yeah. you come to appreciate, 
um, the, the interpersonal dimension to it and the complexities of it, both at a human level and, mm-hmm. and, a, and an individual property level. Yeah. So sure, a lot of people are going to buy houses from a company. I agree with him. Will that be everybody? Absolutely not. I think mm-hmm. he's wrong on that. Yeah. Um, so so you're, you're, it's a good video. You're talking about it's, it's, if you Google Amazon, yeah, uh, we'll, Andreessen, A16 on YouTube talks about real estate. It's yeah, great we'll, video. Fi- we'll, we'll find the video and we'll drop it in the chat for everyone, but it's a threats against, it's like it's software eats the real estate world. And it's a, it's a, yeah, it's yeah. a very, and, and, and I think the whole point is, is that, and what Brian's getting at and what, what we're trying to discuss here is this idea that these conversations are going to be happening more and more because the consumer is going to be presented with these options, whether it's through mass media like TV, radio, ads, they're going to start seeing a world in which this idea of selling your home for top dollar or buying a home for top dollar using someone else's cash is is seamless is stress-free so you're going to have to have an answer to some of these questions and to brian's point we don't know to what degree they'll actually have the market but they're going to be part of every conversation eventually if they're able to be successful brian when you talk about let's let's just look at this purely defensively jimmy so if we say if we say this guy's right Mm mm-hmm in 20 years, 100% of people buy their are, are, are were on track to everybody buying their house from a company. Sure. Okay. Just purely defensively, what is your fire? If you're an agent, what's your firewall against mm-hmm. that against that raging fire that's that's going to consume the industry? The firewall at the end of the day is the relationships you have with your uh, with people, mm-hmm. right? With your farm, with your prospect list, with your past clients. That is your firewall. Sure. Okay. So the, it, it, if that takes off, it, it is it is that uh, predestined yeah. that that's what the future is going to be. Then the only thing that stands between um, that and your future is your ability to maintain the relationship with the person, the mm-hmm. human being, mm-hmm. right? In your neighborhood, the person you put into a home three years ago, who's going to sell three, three years from now mm-hmm. so that that person when when they you know go online and go to Amazon and say send me an offer on my house thinks you know what i really value the relationship i had with agent x and i think she's going to still get me a good price for my home yeah. and it's just going to feel better for me to work with her so no i'm not going to do that i'm going to work with agent x the only thing mm-hmm. that is going to make that happen is sustaining the human relationship. And I'm going to have some questions for you at the end of today's show to follow up on that specifically. What do you mean by that? But you know, the reason you're right, Brian, not that you need my validation is that, um, many years ago, Amazon bought Zappos for, I think around $1 billion at the time. It was a, a massive, uh, uh, valuation. They bought the company for a billion dollars and Zappos was an e-commerce company that sold primarily shoes. And all of us are probably familiar with some form of Zappos at this point. And they sell more than that now. Um, but the reason Amazon bought Zappos was because Amazon uncovered something really interesting that was, you could not ignore is that a consumer was willing to go to Zappos.com and spend more for the same pair of shoes than they would to go to Amazon because there was an association with the brand of value, of trust, and they and they put a price tag on that. So when you can literally, from one click to the next click, it's everything else is equal, shipping, same day, right? Inventory, the same. 
a consumer was willing to pay for more money for the same pair of shoes on one site over the other site. And that's that relationship that Zappos, Zappos was able to build over many years of, ex, of, of a high level of execution. It wasn't like they sat in a room and said, let's, let's deliver great customer service guys. It was a high level of expert execution that, that allowed them to be able to achieve this sort of brand perception or value that uh, consumers felt when they went to Zappos.com. I still feel today when I go to Zappos. Brian, let me get your reaction to one thing here, because this is something that is I'm seeing as a huge trend right now, which is when you go to a traditional listing presentation and agents are competing over uh, each other, as an example, they're, they're sort of saying, I've got a big network, I've got a great marketing plan, I've got lots of experience. And if a consumer interviews three or four agents, they may say some flavor of the same thing, as an example. Uh, mm -hmm. But there are now services that are entering into the space and I'll pull up an example, Eric, if you could. Services like uh, Knock, Point, Fly Homes, they're actually offering tangible value as in the real estate, real estate transaction that you can't ignore. So the company you're looking at right now, Brian, is a company called Knock. And what they basically yeah. do, and this is for our audience if they're not familiar, they will uh, essentially list your property but they will give you the cash or they will buy in a cash offer the next property you wanna buy. So if you're in a buy-sell situation, as an example, the stress the consumer has is timing. They can't quite figure it out how to like sell my house to make a profit to use that profit as a down payment for the next house. So it's very difficult for them logistically, emotionally, to try to figure out how to time it. So what Knock is doing and companies like Knock, they're offering a service where they're saying, we'll take on the burden of listing your property and we will give you the cash to buy the next home immediately. So you can buy that dream house as if you sold your other house, even though it's still in the market. So they're gonna carry that inventory. Do you see this as the evolution of uh, the modern real estate agent where they're gonna have to offer services like this to be able to sort of be a full stack agent, if you will, where they're able to sort of provide like these things that are actually truly valuable, but you know, would normally be not possible for an agent to do if they're a small broker or team. Uh, well, okay. So let's let, and this applies to iBuyers and, and knock and there are others ribbon mm -hmm. like that, that you, you might call cash offer companies. Sure. Right. So, so we'll, we'll take your helm off your hands. We'll, we'll front the cash so you can get into a new home. Right. Yep. And what, what those companies are and look, I think it's totally legit and great. I don't, I am the last person to demonize any of these companies. I think they're healthy because they're actually sort of stirring the pot, shaking things up and mm -hmm. they're going to create, you know, opportunities for good agents to finally break through and win the day. But what those businesses are about, they are deploying massive amounts of capital mm -hmm. to smooth to smooth out the rocky parts of the real estate transaction yeah okay an agent can't do that an agent needs to deploy massive amounts of skill intelligence strategy and humanity mm -hmm. to smooth out the rocky parts of the transaction is that easy no and you know what it shouldn't be easy mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. That's why you're a real estate professional, a yeah. good real estate professional, because it's hard and it takes skill and brains and thinking and interpersonal skills. So no, I wouldn't say you, you're going to a full stack agent. That's their game. Yeah. They have massive amounts of capital to attack this problem of consumer experience. Sure. You as a good real estate professional, your thing is different. 
Mm-hmm. So how are going? How are you going to deliver a better consumer experience? Yeah, yeah. It, it's 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 really interesting to hear you say that because what comes to mind is you're basically saying is find out what their value proposition is to the consumer and then make sure that based on the structure of your business you were equipped to at least address that head on because what you're saying is the answer to the problem of the rockiness of the real estate transaction when you're buying and selling one answer is capital another answer is someone who really knows what they're doing and can plan things you know in such a way where you can maximize the sale of your property without paying a a large uh, convenience fee and buy that property you want without missing on an offer because potentially you don't have the capital put down for a down payment. So that logistics, if you will, that involved in that process is the problem to solve, not just throw capital at it. But it, it is yeah. it is interesting to, to ask this question, again, purely from a marketing perspective. And if you were in real estate, you should be looking at these companies and trying to backwards or to engineer or reverse engineer, what exactly is their value proposition and do I have an answer to this problem? And that's actually, I think, something we don't often do. We sort of, as you said earlier, demonize these companies without actually thinking about why are they actually gaining traction? I realize Zillow is not selling a lot of houses or buying a lot of houses, but they're they're still buying a couple thousand, right? Maybe even more these days, a couple, maybe tens of thousands at this point. Like they're still doing, a, there's, there's still enough consumers choosing it where you should pay attention to it. Let me ask you a question about Redfin. Cause we're, we're talking about iBuyer, we're talking about Zillow offers, we're talking about Knock. Uh, these are, even though they are, uh, you know, deeply ingrained in the real estate industry, they are to some degree thought of as outsiders coming in. Redfin, as you tweeted recently, is an insider. They are a brokerage. They are a technology-enabled brokerage. So uh, my question around Redfin is this. Objectively looking at Redfin, I ask myself this question, why isn't Redfin dominating in every market? And the reason I ask this question is because uh, from a consumer perspective, they have a great brand. I mean, yeah, forget about what real estate agents say about Redfin. Ask the average consumer. They just like generally have a positive sentiment towards Redfin. Great consumer experience on their website. I mean, world-class. Um, they're beloved by their customers. They actually report this in their, in their uh, quarterly earnings. They talk about their NPS score, their net promoter score, for those who don't know what that is, where they say they actually have a 50% higher net promoter score than their competing brokerages. Um, they offer an affordable alternative. You know, they, I, you can't drive anywhere in Boston without seeing 1% Redfin listing fee. Yeah, uh, same here in, in the Bay Area. So, so, so I, I, I see this, Brian. I say they're a brokerage. They got great tech. They got great branding. They're on point with their messaging. Why aren't they selling more properties? Why aren't they picking up more market share? Because you look at them objectively and you say, they, they've kind of got what you would want to have as a, as a uh, well-established premium broker. They've got everything and, and they're cheap. Yeah. So like, what, what is it about them that has failed to sort of translate into, again, like the market share that you would expect them to have? Well, Redfin, first of all, is a company I admire quite mm-hmm. a bit and from whom I think we can all learn in many ways. But the reason that I think Redfin has not you know, they, they've been around for 15 years now. Mm-hmm. The reason why they have not um, gained the market share that you, you might expect, as, as you put it, is that Redfin at the end of the day is a process-based brokerage, not a people-based brokerage. Um, Redfin <clears throat> has amazing technology. Mm-hmm. They, have a, they have a fantastic brand. You you and I know what Redfin means, mm-hmm. okay? Um, everybody in America 
at least in the major metros, knows what Redfin means. Great technology, great brand, a finely tuned process. Yeah. But what they don't have is is the thing that we've been talking about for the last 45 minutes. Yeah. They don't have the skilled, emotionally and intellectually intelligent human being sure. who can spend the time in somebody's living room. Sure, they have red pen agents who will meet you at a property or maybe mm-hmm. they'll send somebody out or whatever. I mean, I don't mean to bash red pen, but at the end of the day, they have agents who do you know, about 100 transactions a year mm-hmm. and they sit within a minutely specified process yeah. and that's what they drive, Sure, right? So they have everything right except the human dimension that a great real estate agent brings. Mm-hmm. And that's because their model only works at, at volume. Yeah, sure. Right? Sure. They have they have agents who are super productive, but they are agents who are driving a process, mm-hmm. not driving their own business and driving relationships. So would it be safe to say that, you know, if you're using a Redfin, Redfin agent, you're typically not going to be overly loyal to that agent because you're more loyal to the brand than the individual agent? That's right. Yes. So that's the other thing Redfin is. It is a broker-focused real estate company. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in most cases, and we work with many what you might call traditional brokers, sure. very good companies. And, um, you know, even they will admit the the primacy of their agent's or their team's brands, yeah, um, and the the broker is is a ingredient, a contributor to that, but yeah. it's not often dominant. Redfin is dominant, mm-hmm. so Redfin is ma- missing that human factor. Yeah, they have everything else right, and so the question is: over time, as consumer attitudes shift, and I buying as sort of a compliment and cash offer companies like not, you know, doing their thing, sort of get people in the mindset where they yeah. become more accustomed to not having, you know, Jane or Joe agent who is, mm-hmm. you know, with them riding shotgun through the transaction. Yeah. Redfin can grow. I think it's a great company. Yeah. I admire Glenn Kelman, but I think that's the missing link for Redfin. Yeah, and and when you think about models, you've said it's sort of a broker model that's focused on process. We have models that are obviously more people-focused or people-centric, if you will. I think if I were to characterize the typical boutique brokerage that we see or that we work with, that there is a heavy investment in the culture and the people of the company, uh, more so than you maybe see at larger-scale companies. It's actually one of the big value propositions they sell. I think of uh, Lucky to Live Here uh, Realty in Long Island, who's doing amazingly well i mean amazingly well they're dominating that market uh and uh they are built on having a great culture and that culture has translated into wonderful brand recognition in their small part of the world i think of stephanie lanier the lanier property group uh who's who who has a great brand has a great culture is able to attract people to that so there is an association with the brand or if you put a people first sort of brand there is sort of this association that um actually does, I think, translate into consumer perception. Like you're going to get something more from these companies because they care so much about the people that they're working with. Um, I do. I I just on that, Jimmy, because I think it gets, and this is, you know, obviously what, what a thousand miles we live and breathe all day. It's, that's a creative agency. We think about branding, right? And you know that, but you know, a brand among other things is the promises you can make. Mm -hmm. And, um, it becomes harder and harder to make promises. Yeah. In real estate, the bigger you get. 
Sure. So if you're Stephanie Lanier or you're a boutique with 50 agents, you can, you know, put your arms around your company and shape a brand and you can actually, to the extent that you can with independent contractors, mm-hmm. kind of sort of shape um, experience and service delivery. Yeah. And you can make promises. Okay. So that, as you become bigger, becomes more difficult. It's mm-hmm. not impossible. Mm-hmm. It requires extraordinary leadership, but it's more difficult. So, you know, and that's, that's frankly, I think, why the present and future is going to be so heavily uh, driven by, by teams is teams are small units of um, command and control, mm-hmm. where if you're Team X and you have, let's say, eight or ten people on your team, yeah. you can make promises about how you do real estate that you can actually keep. Yeah. Where's the growth there, though? Where's the growth for a team? Well, yeah, because you, you're, you're absolutely right. Like, your answer is, like, let's be smaller, because smaller you can it's easier to make those promises and keep those promises and sort of have that command control type of model. But, like, where is the growth in that model? Because the reason I bring that up is that, like, I look at the team model and I say, man, why would I ever open a brokerage? Why would I ever be an agent? You know, as a team, you got none of the expenses that you normally would carry the brokerage, all the sort of infrastructure, if you will, that you would normally carry with it. You got you got the sort of ability where you've got their resources and you're sort of kind of like a gun for hire in the sense that you're being heavily recruited as the bell of the ball for all these other brokerages. So you're in this position where if you're, if you're a brokerage, that a brokerage consists of a bunch of teams, you know that you're kind of constantly under siege from other brokers who are trying to recruit that. I saw recently Compass has got another $370 million in funding recently. Obviously, a company is out there making compelling offers for agents and teams to join their, their their movement, their brokerage. So if you're a team, which appears to be, again, from a, from an amateur's perspective here, the most logical model in real estate, given sort of all, given how much I hear about people from people like you, how terrible the margins are to be a broker, broker how volatile it is to be a single agent. Like if you're a team, as an example, in real estate, uh, where is the growth that exists? Because isn't the growth for a team just to become a brokerage? Can you become a, like, isn't a big team, a 20, 30, 40%? Like, when do you stop being a team, Brian? It's my question. When do you just become like, we are now this entity, right? Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Uh, I will say this, and I mean this, this, this sounds bad, but I mean it positively. That the team broker relationship right now is parasitic. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's great for the team, as yeah. you suggest. They kind of live on the host, and they get a lot of the, the benefits, and without some of the risk that comes with actually being a broker. Sure. So that's worked very well for lots of teams. Yeah. I think the trajectory ultimately for a lot of these teams is to become their own brokerage. Yeah. I, I really do think that is the next logical step because at the end of the day even as a team where your brand is supersede your team brand supersedes your broker's brand and you kind of have your own processes, your own tech stack, all mm-hmm. of that. Yeah. At the end of the day, what do you truly own? And um, I think that's a question that, you know, a lot of teams end up asking themselves is when do I make that, make that leap from being this thing? Like our industry in some ways, you know, those Russian, those wooden Russian dolls mm-hmm. where you open up and yeah. there's a little doll inside, then you keep opening. We're kind of like, it's a weird structure, right? So we have the franchisor, sure. we have the 
we open that, there's the broker. We open that, there's the team. We open the team, there's the rainmaker and the buyer's agent, the TC and yeah. all of that. Yeah. And like, it kind of sort of is, is working now. It's sort of a, a hack around kind of a, a rusted value chain. Yeah. Um, what is the next evolution of the team? That's a question I don't really know the answer to, but I think is going to be interesting to see evolve. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I, we deal with so many agents and we do work with so many teams and, and small brokers, Brian. And, and one thing I always feel bad for them is that they are so susceptible to massive change at the at the drop of a hat, you could be a successful agent with ten you know t uh, ten people on your team, and then tomorrow half of them leave. And what I've always yeah. coached our clients on is, and this may sound cold, but I've told them that there is no loyalty in real estate because they are independent contractors. You can't hold them. You know, theoretically, there's contracts you can have in place, but like they are independent contractors. You don't pay them a salary. You don't give them benefits. There isn't that switching cost that normally involves in leaving a good job to another good job. There's lots of consideration that goes into it. So the best thing that you can do is build a moat around your business, meaning control as much of the logistics and operation and marketing and selling as you possibly can to allow them to focus on only one small part of the process, which would make it very easy for you to replace a good agent with a good agent. If that agent though is going to leave with all this institutional knowledge on how they actually built this company, you're exposing yourself to a high degree of risk. So one of the things that I think a lot about Brian is how do you de-risk a very risky business model? And I think this is where you have to control as much of the operations and the acquisition and the retention as possible at the sort of, uh, to use your, your words, host level. So the parasites, if you will, using your words, not mine, uh, would like- Hey, it, I don't, I don't, <laughs> look, that don't, was simply to illustrate the point. Yes. <laughs> I, I did not mean anything negative. I know. In, in using we're going to, we're going to, we're going to grab that small clip and that's going to be on my Instagram stories about, yeah. about 30 minutes. Yes. No, thank you. Um, but, but, to, but to use that example, you're, you're less concerned about the ebbs and flows of an agent being poached by a, 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 a you know, new innovative company because you yeah. in some res respects have de-risked a very risky business model. So it's something for people to think about because I don't think people go nearly as deep. They, they think that because someone likes them that they're going to stay with them. And I, we have this 30,000 foot view, Brian, where we see the landscape and I've seen the heartbreak that causes you know, really yeah. good, talented, hardworking agents when they lose someone who they thought was, yeah. you know, their forever, you know, partner. So yeah. we've got like seven minutes left and I could talk to you for hours about this stuff. I'm going to go rapid fire here. We're going to go screen share because we have a section on the water cooler. That's one of my favorite, which is translate this tweet. We're going to end the show with you giving some advice on how to future proof your business. We're going to go rapid fire there as well, but let's, I want to get 30 seconds on each one of these, Brian, I'm going to show you a tweet and I want you to tell me the backstory behind what you meant by this tweet and what was the situation in which you tweeted it. All right, Eric, let's pull up the first one. The biggest agent in my market isn't a good agent. She's a good salesperson. This seems really common and pretty backwards. Let's hear your feedback on it. <laughs> Do I look like a rapid fire kind of guy? <laughs> I know you're not, uh, you're, you're better for that 90 minute podcast. We'll, we'll get that. I, one I have, the you know, I'm always deliberately and strategically opaque on Twitter. So, um, no, what I mean by that is, um, I, I think, at least in my experience, and you tell me if it has been different for you guys, you see a lot of this top producer syndrome where people become very successful and they build a big book of business and they do tremendous volume. And in building that book of business, they actually sort of 
distance themselves from the details of actually doing a good job mm. and they get they get sloppy and um that that is always the balancing act right how do you grow your business and do more volume but provide the level of service and the results that you did when you were doing less volume and sure. had more time to take with every transaction and i think the answer lies somewhere in building um processes that are scalable and hiring people that can be extensions of um your sort of personal mm -hmm. uh brand and the sorts of things that got you started so yeah. it's 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 all it's all sizzle no steak is what you're basically saying in this tweet and, and what i hear you say is that there's a danger that if you're good at sales without the actual talent to back it up you're a hack and that's a fair that's a fair assessment in my opinion if you're good at selling yeah but you're actually bad at being a real estate agent, you're missing half of the equation. Now, if you're good you're missing, at being, uh, yeah. go ahead, I'm yeah. sorry. And, and, and look, as it, again, amidst all this change, and as we enter this phase of scarcity, where good people, unscrupulous, or bad people, unscrupulous people, unskilled realtors, they're gonna find it harder to survive. Mm -hmm. And I think that agent, who's just good at convincing people to do things, yeah. isn't, they're going to struggle too. One of the things that people don't know about Chris that, that I personally love is people see Chris as a sort of boisterous sales guy out there talking, promoting. He's got an attitude. He's got an opinion. People love or hate him. I got a, so many funny stories about what people said to me when I first partnered with Chris uh, way back when we started working together. Uh, some things people would really regret if I publicly put it on put it on blast here. But uh, the one thing I've always admired and I've always knew from about Chris is that he is an, a world class salesperson. All right, like objectively speaking, he is a world class. He's he's mastered his craft, but he's also got the talent and the skills behind the scenes that no one ever really sees. And when I hear you see, when I see that tweet, that's what I really sort of it would draw to me. If Chris was just cr the public facing Chris without the hustle and the hard work and the talent behind the scenes, he would be a fool. He would be a bozo, right? But he but he's not because he's got he's got the other parts of it that people don't see and that's what's been able to sort of propel him to a certain level. All right, next week we're going to keep this going our best version. By the way, I, I I would second your assessment of Chris. There you go. Appreciate that. For, I'm for, I'm, sure he'll, I'm, yeah. sure, I'm sure he'll I'm sure I'm sure he'll he'll uh, help promote you guys on Instagram here shortly. He's uh, you know, he's been doing that quite often. It's been great for for all of our guests. Let's go to the second let's go to the second uh uh post here. Second tweet, excuse me. The preponderance of bullshit in our industry right now is something to behold. Translate yeah. this tweet, Brian. Well, what I mean by that is I'm not speaking about, um, I'm talking about it in industry level and the industry is this construct. Sure. Right. It, it basically exists in conference ballrooms and on social media. Mm -hmm. And, um, that that's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about, you know, you know, broker X or agent Y. Okay. I mean, I mean, look, people uh, at a high level are willing to say some pretty audacious things in real estate right now that just, yeah, the, the, the audacity mm -hmm. um, powering some of the bullshit that's coming out of people's mouths at a corporate level is, is pretty, remarkable and it's disconnected from reality is what you're saying well i, I don't know i mean look i i'm all for having a great story but uh, sure and i don't want to name names but uh a lot of very questionable and um 
I guess, things of dubious veracity are, are coming out of people at very high levels in this industry right now. Yeah, well, it's interesting because I think from from our perspective, it is one thing I learned early in this in this industry is that there is a massive disconnect between what you hear and see at a conference and what the real world looks like. You know, I, uh, one of the one of the one of the really interesting things that I think people don't know about me and my connection to Thousand Watt is uh, when I first got into this industry, I was a nobody. I was a 22 year old destitute, you know, uh, guy who was running a little small company that worked to build a Facebook application. And I somehow got connected to Mark Davidson. I don't even know how it actually ended up happening, but he was one of the first people I spoke to in this industry within the first two months of me being in the space. And Mark was gracious enough, and I'll never forget it, to spend like 30 minutes on the phone with me telling me about and talking about this industry, what to prepare me for, right? How to, how to potentially market the, the, the business, you know, and his advice, I don't even really remember all the specifics, but I just remember him being like, wow, this guy who's clearly very successful was taking time out of his day to basically help this nobody. And that was a decade ago to think about that. It's pretty wild. But what was interesting about that conversation and something I learned pretty quickly, because I, I was on tour with Agent Reboot going around the country within the next, you know, 12 to 18 months, is I realized how disconnected uh, people were from what was actually happening in the trenches. Meaning you go on stage at an event, everyone talks about how great their business is, how well they're doing, how their marketing is working. And behind the scenes, when you peel back the layers, it, it's a madhouse. And, it, and, and there's sort of one or two months from basically implosion. And so there is something to be said that we sort of herald these people on stage as these brilliant innovators and visionaries, but many of them are running very bad businesses. And that's something that you learn pretty quickly in this space is that just because you're good at real estate doesn't mean you can run a good business. So Brian, I want to, we're not going to do another rapid fire because you're incapable of doing rapid fire tweets. Uh, it's something we'll keep in mind for the next show because you're going to, you go on a tangent, but I will ask one last question, which is. You guys have worked with some of the best, most innovative brands out there. Your portfolio, and Eric, if we can pull up the site for one moment. Uh, when you look at your portfolio on Thousand Watt, you guys work with amazing, amazing brands. Michael Saunders, uh, Red Oak Realty, uh, Realty Austin, like the kind of list goes on. If you guys haven't been to their website and look at their actual uh, portfolio, it's pretty remarkable. We've been talking this entire show about how to future-proof your business against what it theoretically is, these conversations that are happening right now in real estate that you're not really ready for. How to prepare yourself for this sort of influx of capital that's gonna cause the consumer to get all these new options available to them at their fingertips. You guys have been focusing and you've been obsessing over through this entire conversation the importance of people, the importance of relationship, the importance of, of a long-standing connection and, and retention. So my question is, when you guys go through the process of of working with the brand, I want you to talk to our audience now because our audience, many of them can't afford 1,000 watt, right? They can't afford 1,000 watt. They see the work you guys do. They're amazed by it. They love it. What advice would you give to someone like uh, a small team that's got a $1,000 marketing budget or a $1,000 budget they can spend on advertising per month? What advice would you give to them to help prepare them for the future of focusing on people, focusing on relationships, focusing on retention. Like what, what do you guys do at, a, at, at the high level, like, like with a Michael Saunders and a Realty Austin, that you can maybe distill down to a much lower level for an agent to be able to kind of take with them today? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, we, <clears throat> when it, with any engagement, 
we go through a process called discovery where we go and we sit um, in market with the company over a period of days and mm -hmm. we really try to we, we run through a series of exercises where we try to identify that sort of nugget of value and values at the mm -hmm. core of a company. And then our job is to reflect that sure. through marketing, design, branding, et cetera. So that's a process. But I would say for any agent or team, it's the same sort of thing. Think about difference. Difference is a doorway into getting to that point. Mm -hmm. So what is it? what is it that you can do that none of your competitors can do mm -hmm. or are willing to do? What is it that you can say mm -hmm. in your marketing, your listing presentation on your website yeah. that none of your competitors are able to say mm -hmm. or willing to say, ask yourselves those questions, write it down. And then that is the point of departure for your story, mm -hmm. your brand, your message, all of those things that constitute the foundation of a brand. The other thing, just an exercise that we frequently run companies through is, you know, we call it first best only. So ask yourself, what is the, what is the first thing that your company, or in this case, your team, or you as a, a solo practitioner, what's the first thing you started doing in your marketing? Mm -hmm. in, in your marketplace where did you lead mm -hmm. okay what is that thing secondly what are you the best at mm -hmm. what can you, what 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 can you confidently say you are the best at okay and then what is the thing that only you do mm -hmm. only your company or you as an individual do write mm -hmm. those things down and again <clears throat> the purpose is to sort of get through all of the platitudes and all of the you know, templates and all of the bullshit chatter that exists out on social media and at conferences. What is what is at the core of you that mm -hmm. is going to sustain you mm -hmm. through times that are exciting because they're so turbulent and, and fluid? Mm -hmm. First, best only. I love that. And I think it's a really practical takeaway for our audience right now because I think many people will stop on the superficial level, Brian, when I hear that. They'll say, like, what makes you different? What makes you special? What makes you unique? Yeah. And they'll sort of just, like, they won't go through that exercise. By forcing you set yourself to say, what is that thing but that thing that has to be different to than, the, than your competitors? And you have to be, I think, a certain level of honesty that would be required through this process that you may not be willing to do initially. But mm -hmm. that FBO, first best only is a wonderful way of thinking about how to position yourself in a marketplace where the consumer has unlimited choices, unlimited options, and quite honestly is confused on who's the best and who they should work with. So on that note, guys, the Water Cooler is a show about marketing, sales, and technology. Each episode, we focus on bringing you advice that works. You can tune in live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern on our Facebook page. To catch the replay, you can subscribe to us on YouTube or download our podcast wherever you get your uh, podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Brian, thanks so much for being on the show, my friend. It was awesome to catch up with you again. We're going to book another session. We'll uh, slot 90 minutes next time. Thanks, brother. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Jimmy. Take care.